The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Hello, you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the first of our September 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information. Coming up, we have... There was a consensus of huge numbers of people in this country that they put an end to a wicked thing, and that... Somehow or other, they, they were especially virtuous in this, but ignoring in the process the fact that they're the ones who brought it to such perfection. That was James Wolvin on the abolition of the slave trade. Take six spoonfuls of the gall of an ox or cow, put them there to two spoonfuls of the powder of the longworms of the earth and the powder of half a nutmeg grated. Well, that was Catherine Foxall with a migraine recipe cure. We can look at the History of Victorian domesticity and the master-servant relationship. And that was Dan Snow on Irvig House. Our first interview is with Professor James Wolvin. Professor Wolvin is one of the leading experts on slavery and its abolition in the 19th century. He's just written a new book, The Zong, A Massacre, The Law and the End of Slavery, published by Yale University. And he's also acted as advisor on our latest Where History Happened feature in the magazine, where we're talking about the abolition of the slave trade. I caught up with him to talk about the run-up to the abolition movement. In the current issue of the magazine, you've helped us on a feature about the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. Uh, which is obviously a very interesting subject. Um, but to understand that, I suppose we need to know how did Britain or Britons first become involved in the slave trade. So can we trace it back? Do we know when the, when the origins of this, of this business started? The Atlantic slave trade isn't British in origin. I mean, it really started by um, the Portuguese and the Spaniards. Mm. Um, but the British come to dominate it by the late 18th century. At the point that the British become the great imperial power in the Atlantic in the mid-18th century, they dominate the slave trade. By the, by the last years of the 18th century, you know, one African in six or seven is crossing the Atlantic in a ship from Liverpool, for instance. So that gives you some indication of just how important it had become by the late 18th century. But in origin, uh, the British are quite late. The British come to this after the, after the Iberians. The slave trade really takes off for the British from, what, about 1690 onwards. And it's when they've got their um, slave colonies. It's when the British are finally, English initially, really, when they've settled their Caribbean islands, first Barbados and St Kitts, then particularly Jamaica, and then the mainland colonies in North America. It's then that, you know, from 1690 onwards, say, that you get more and more Africans uh, transported against their will across the Atlantic, primarily to grow sugar. That's the thing that draws them over. Not so much in North America, of course, where it's initially rice and tobacco, um, but it's sugar more than anything else. And it's sugar that dominates the Atlantic slave trade through its history, that um, a, a very, very high proportion, 70% of all Africans, are taken across the Atlantic to work in sugar. Uh, not just by the British, but more especially and continuing after the British abolished it, into Brazil. 
Right. It's sugar. And so there are interesting questions about, you know, what is it about sugar that needs slave labour? And why can't you grow sugar in West Africa? Why take Africans 3,000 miles to produce a tropical commodity, where in fact you could actually grow it in, in West Africa? So there are all kinds of really interesting questions about why is it that the Europeans, eventually dominated by the British, come to need Africans by the boatload to produce a commodity, sugar, cane sugar, which they never used before. Um, what is so funny, special about sugar? You know, we, we take it for granted now, but it's new. You know, it's brand new. People didn't use cane sugar until the um, 17th century. They'd used honey. And yet there's something about this commodity that becomes part and parcel of Western life. It, it moves from being a, a luxury to a, a necessity for everybody. And for that, you need Africans. Mm. So, obviously, you got all these, all these Africans being transported ac across the ocean and, and people directly involved in that, in the shipping and, and, and the business side of it. But how, how familiar would that story have been to people in Britain? Would they, how, how aware were they of the trade that was going on, do you think? Well, there are very few people not affected by this in time. Initially, when it's small scale, just the odd ship leaving Bristol or Poole uh, or Lancaster or Preston, um, or Bristol and Liverpool, eventually, London. But uh, because ships are leaving those places for all corners of the Atlantic, increasingly. But just think of it, that by the time... We know something like 40,000 slave voyages. By the time it's mature, you're looking at huge numbers of ships leaving for the coast of Africa and then for the Americas. Think of the number of people working on it, the number of men working on it. There are tens of thousands of British sailors on those ships. There are huge numbers of people whose labours depend on the slave ships, you know, people who produce goods to load onto the African slave ships. Pipe makers in Liverpool, pipes that are exchanged for Africans in, on the coast textile workers in Lancashire and Yorkshire, whose goods are, again, exchanged for Africans. So gradually people become aware that this is a really major industry, without which, you know, the British would really rather suffer. And how much presence was there in British streets of Africans? The story of Africans and their descendants in Britain is kind of interesting sideshow to this whole story because you're looking at the scattering of, million of millions of Africans and uh, some of them of course inevitably end up in, in England uh, and you can see them, you go to any major art gallery of 18th century collections now and you'll see an African face in the corner of a family portrait. Uh, they're in cartoons, they're in sketches, uh, newspapers are uh, peppered with adverts for runaway slaves for people offering Africans for sale. Uh, people are aware of them, people comment on them, uh, they're they crop up in parish records, uh, in, in the they pop up in, in graveyards, you see headstones to them. So they're there, uh, but it's only really from the mid-18th century that it, it becomes clear that they're there in any substantial numbers. They're still there as a kind of small minority, especially in London, but they're, um, they're, not, a, they're not a huge number. But of course, because of the kind of colour difference, they're, they're a striking presence. And they catch the eye of people who want to capture content the contemporary world, artists. Um, people writing about the world around them. So the Africans make their impact in the way people recall the world around them by the mid-18th century. And what, what was the, the legal situation regarding Africans in Britain if they were slaves? Could, could you be a slave in Britain at the time? You could be a, you could be a slave, but it would depend when. Um, 
the legal, the story of the legality of slavery in England is a really complex and tortuous one. Um, if you brought an African from Jamaica who you bought in, in Jamaica or Barbados or Virginia, uh, was he still a slave when you stepped ashore in Bristol or Liverpool? Well, there was a kind of contrary legal tradition. You know, after habeas corpus in the 1670s, mm. uh, everyone's free. You know, the whole 17th century struggle for rights and establishment of individual rights is reflected in the law. But there's a tension between colonial law and um, English or Scottish uh, case law. And throughout the 18th century, a whole series of major cases trying to settle the issue is a slave free by stepping ashore in England? And it's not really resolved with any satisfaction until Lord, Summer, Lord Mansfield's case, the Somerset case in 1772. It's not quite as clear-cut as many people think, but he effectively brings it to an end in 1772. We know of cases of slavery afterwards, but the law's taken a pretty clear line on, uh, on slavery by 1772. Uh, and his, his decision is that you, you can't remove an African against his wishes out of England. Right. It, it was basically about should a plan to be able to take his slave back to the, uh, the Americas with him. Um, Mansfield said no, under habeas corpus, you can't do that. He's a right to live here as anybody else. And that effectively undermines uh, slavery as an institution in England. So was that the point when people started to question the idea of slavery and the morality of the slave trade, or had that already begun years before? The odd thing about questioning slavery is that um, why hadn't it begun at an earlier stage? You know, if well, the British abolished the slave trade in 1807, well, if it's wrong, immoral, unchristian, whatever, in 1807, why had it not been in 1707 or 1607? What's changed? You know, it's not the slave trade. What's changed are the British. And the British come to think of this as something that's outrageous for a whole series of reasons. There are one or two voices of criticism early on, uh, but they are small, a small minority. The real takeoff of criticism about the slave trade and then slavery, the real takeoff is launched by Quakers. There were Enlightenment writers that offered kind of um, intellectual arguments against it, but the real practical takeoff is the Quakers. In Philadelphia and London, and they raise these basic questions about uh, the ethics of the slave trade and determine that Quakers should not hold slaves. And it's in in the years after the American War, after 1783, that um, because of a concoction of political circumstance, more and more people come to accept that the slave trade is deeply flawed. And that's especially the case after the Zong case in 1783. What was the Zong case? What was that? What happened there? The Zahn case was where uh, a Liverpool ship, it was Dutch originally, but it was registered in Liverpool, uh, misnavigated, ran short of provisions, and the crew, the captain or whoever, it's not clear who, decided that they could solve the problem of landing healthy slaves in Jamaica, where they were heading, by killing a batch of the weaker ones. And 132 of them were thrown overboard and killed. That's in 1781. The case surfaces again before Lord Mansfield in 1783. And the irony is that the Liverpool owners, led by a man called William Gregson, bring the case because their insurers refuse to pay. They're, and it's a matter of insurance. And the irony is that the, the, the case of this mass murder is discussed in an English court before the Lord Chief Justice, not as a murder case, not as a massacre, which is what it was, but as a contested insurance matter. And, but the interesting thing is that the Liverpool ship owners bring the case 
without any sense that it's a problem that they should parade this story through an English court, i.e. that their men, their sailors, had murdered 133 Africans and they want their money back on the Africans. They don't seem to see that there's any kind of moral dimension to this. But of course, once the story breaks in court, it's as if it's lit the, the blue touch paper and it causes a kind of extraordinary uh, outcry. And that really is the beginning of uh, a major campaign against the slave trade. So was it at that point that did, did the ship owners see the error in their ways? Did they think, oh, actually, this is wrong? Or, 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 well, or quite the contrary. They, they don't press the case. They don't get their money, as far as we know. The case just falls away. Um, there should have been another case, but it, another trial, but it was never brought. Um, but far from seeing the errors of their ways, the men who owned the slave ship, Zong, uh, embark on even more slave voyages after 1783. The slave trade booms in the years after the American War. And here's the great irony. Liverpool sent more Africans across the Atlantic in the last 20 years of the 18th century than they had in the previous 20 years. At the very point that more and more Britons come to think of the slave trade as wrong, it's making more money, it's making money hand over fist. So you've got a real interesting historical problem. How do you explain that the British turn against it at the point that it's very profitable? Not when it's, not when it's losing money. Not when, you can understand the British turning against it if it's uneconomic, which has been the, believed to be the case for many, many years. That, that's been a kind of consensus for a very long time. But the evidence now points not in that direction. So it was a, a profitable business and people weren't necessarily seeing anything morally wrong about it. But other people were by this point. So how did we get to the point where we moved into parliamentary discussions and eventually legislation? How did that process move on? The campaign against the slave trade takes off very, very quickly after about 1787, formed by Quakers initially, formed by men of a certain kind of sensibility, religious men on the whole. But it then becomes popular and People signed the petition in the tens of thousands up and down the country. Between 1787 and 1792, tens of thousands of people signed petitions against the slave trade. And it's something to do with the rise of nonconformity. Many of these petitions start in churches and chapels. It's something to do with the rise of literacy, because the Quakers are extraordinarily literate people, believe in the power of the printed word. And the early abolitionists print cheap or free pamphlets which they distribute in their tens of thousands around the country. People read about the slave trade. What they read about, they're appalled about. And the Zong is just one extravagant example of a broader story, that here is uh, a series of horror stories that emerge from the belly of the slave ships. And that the men who'd worked on the slave ships and the Africans who'd been slaved and who are now a small bunch of freed Africans living in London, they tell the stories of the reality of the slave ships and they're appalling stories. And there's a kind of transformation in sensibility about it, that people come to feel that here is something that even for the great profits it yields and the well-being that it yields to the British, it's very hard to justify this, given the kind of uh, the horrors that have visited upon boatloads of Africans. And did the... Um uh, I think recent scholarship has, has focused a little bit more on the role of the slaves themselves in pushing these, this debate forward. The, the ex-slaves, I guess, the ones who are, who, who are no longer working plantations. Is that right? And, and how much of a role did they actually have, do you think? Yeah, I mean, the way abolition was portrayed 
if you look at it over the last 70, 80 years, perhaps even longer, that initially, from the, eight, from the 1940s onwards, there was a, an emergent consensus that it was economics that lay behind it, that Britain becoming industrialised didn't need this system as much as it once did, and turns to other forms of economic activity, industrial revolution. Uh, that has kind of faded or become, become modified um, so that people now really do believe that you need to look at the popular politics of abolition. Um, but what was left out of all that was African agency. It was as if the Africans were noises off stage and had no say in their own fate, in a way. And what's now accepted and what's pretty clear is that African actions trying to secure their own freedom on the slave ships in the Americas and via a small band of spokesmen in London, in London, people speaking to the early abolitionists and becoming part of the movement, that Africans have a voice, have a role, and have an influence in a way that early generations of historians didn't recognise. But bringing it back to the people in Britain, the, the, the Britons themselves, is it, was it Wilberforce who was the, the key figure, or is he, does he, is he the man who overshadows all other efforts? Well, for far too long, Wilberforce sort of personified the whole movement. You know, the people tended to write about abolition as if it was Wilberforce and his evangelical mates. Uh, we've actually gone too far the other extreme now, um, and that it's... When I wander around the country talking about this, it's very easy to airbrush Wilberforce out of this. Yet when abolition was passed by Parliament, and remember, the abolition of Parliament was actually, the abolition of the slave trade was a parliamentary act. Yeah. Parliament passed a new piece of legislation to stop the slave trade. And Wilberforce was the parliamentary spokesman for that. When it was passed in March 1807, the House of Commons gave a standing ovation to an old man in the corner who was weeping copiously, and it was William Wilberforce. Now, the House of Commons don't give standing ovations. It's not part of the, the protocol, and yet they did on this occasion. And do we feel we know better than the House of Commons at the time? They, the men who'd passed the act felt they knew who was a key player. That's not to say that he caused it, but without Wilberforce, it would have taken a different turn. It would have taken a different course. He was persistent. He stuck with it. He was often a bad parliamentary manager. He often alienated people he needed to uh, butter up. He often didn't get the votes right. But nonetheless, he was like a dog with a bone. You know, he wouldn't let go of abolition. And not to recognise that is to miss out a real important variable in the, in the, in the formula of abolition. So he does deserve that big column in hull that he's got in his hometown. Yeah, I mean, how big and how high the column should be, it's a, a, you know, we could argue about that. Um, and it's interesting that he's there, isn't it? It's his, his, his hometown, an MP for Hull. He was MP for York as well, of course. Uh, um, the problem is that it's simplifying things uh, to have him there as uh, the major figure. He, he, he's, he's a critical figure, but there are others around him, and some have been traditionally ignored. When the Act was passed in 1807, what was the public reaction to it then? Was, was everyone then of one voice saying, this, we have now progressed morally to the point where everyone is clear that this is a bad thing and we as Britons should not be engaged in it? The people who didn't feel that abolition was a good thing were, of course, the, the great vested interests of the slave trade, the great merchants of, of Liverpool and Bristol, Liverpool and London. Mm. There was a huge amount of money tied up in this, so there was a feeling in the areas involved in the slave trade, that this would be a serious blow to their economic interests. It didn't work out like that because two things had happened. One, the slave trade didn't end, 
there was an illicit slave trade that continued right through to the 1860s. Mm. Uh, and equally, I mean, the, the great merchant houses of Liverpool found other lucrative parts of the world to involve themselves in, in a different kind of shipping. Uh, but there was a consensus of huge numbers of people in this country that they'd put an end to a wicked thing and that somehow or other they, they were especially virtuous in this. And what happens after 1807 is that the British come to think of themselves as being collectively, nationally, a rather virtuous crowd. You know, they put an end to this wicked system, but ignoring in the process the fact that they're the ones who brought it to such perfection. And this has been one of the great problems of abolition ever since, that the British are much more likely to think of themselves as an abolitionist nation than they are of themselves as a slave-trading nation. And yet for 200 years, or 150 years, mm. before abolition, it's the British who carry more Africans across the Atlantic than anyone else. Now, after 1807, they set about stopping other people doing it. So after 1807, the British become abolitionists, the Royal Navy is no longer shepherding slave ships, it's, it's persecuting them. The Foreign Office is, no, is now uh, trying to stop, uh, strike agree agreements and treaties with countries to stop them being slave-trading. So that to the outside world, and to the French and the Americans, the British look very odd about this. The British look, it's classic uh, English humbuggery, you know, that um, having perfected something, made our money from it, we decide that others shouldn't do it because it's wrong. So was there a, a general feeling around the world that Britain become pious and holier than thou over something which, which, which in the past it had had its hands thoroughly in the bucket with? Yes, there is a feeling amongst, even amongst the Americans who themselves become abolitionists in 1808, uh, the, the Americans don't like British threats to American shipping if we think that they're, they're, it's an illicit American slave ship. And the French certainly don't like it because the French want to carry on doing it um, because they have interests in the Americas that, you know, that they can make money from it still. And equally, you know, there are he a huge growth in demand for slaves in the Americas, particularly from Brazil and Cuba. There's a lot of money to be made from shipping new Africans in there. And yet the British are saying, listen, this is, this is a moral outrage, you shouldn't do it. And yet, throughout the 18th century, they'd done it better than anybody else. Is there anything that's, that people today who are interested in changing public perception can learn from this process? Because it's such an such a enormous sea change from, you know, from, from, from polar opposite views in quite a short period of time. It, can people take anything from it? Well... I, it's a very interesting question, and it's something that's cropped up time and again in the last few years. I think, for instance, if you looked at the movie Amazing Grace, yeah. that was, I think, an American twist on that same question. That here was an example, the British turning against the slave trade as an immoral issue, even though economically it might actually continue to yield profit. Here was an example of people of virtue, people of Christian commitment, can change the world if you set your mind to it. You know, think of that, you know, that's the kind of... Uh, it's not unlike the campaign against apartheid. Mm. It's, it's not unlike the problems about uh, arms sales. It's not unlike the problems about economic investment in, in wicked regimes. You know, um, so, if you really want an example of what can be done by men, of men and women of commitment and conviction, the slave trade offers that example. And I think it has been struck large numbers of people that it's a, a blueprint in a way of how you can change things despite the, 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 the way it's deeply embedded in a, in a society. No one in 1783, say, very few people could have imagined that within a generation the slave trade would be ended. The British slave trade, 
You just have to look at the forest of masts at Liverpool. Ships heading to and from Africa and the Americas. I mean, who's to say that this is going to be brought down by a campaign? And so, you know, you, there are people who feel that here is the lesson to be learned from the way you can change the world despite everything. Just to finish off, it must be, um, uh, you're a historian, you've been working on this for, for, for quite a while, this subject. It must be one of the more difficult subjects to research for many reasons, but particularly because when you're dealing with those slave traders, with our modern perspective, you've got a natural bent to, to not like them, I suspect, because of, of what they're doing. But obviously, that's unfair to them because they're working with a completely different moral compass. Is it difficult to disentangle modern views with, with, with past views there? It is difficult, but um, the difficulty with it is actually teaching it, I think, because it's very hard talking to young students um, to persuade them that the slave traders were not kind of uniquely wicked men. Uh, if you take someone like John Newton, the great, the, the man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, the words, uh, was a slave trade captain out of Liverpool in his early days, uh, praised his Lord and said his prayers and wrote pious letters to his wife as he ploughed across the Atlantic with a cargo of African slaves. And as sat, uh, as he docked in, uh, in St. Kitts at one point, discussing the concept of grace with a slave captain on the next ship. So absolutely nothing uh, incongruous or conflicting about being a pious Englishman going about godless work. And the difficulty is trying to get inside the minds of contemporaries who, as you say, occupy, have a different moral compass than our own. But actually, if you really want to look at that alliance between that strange, almost incomprehensible alliance of what we would regard as evil, or irreligion, along with um, piousness. Uh, you only have to look at the, the 20th century Europe, don't you, that uh, these are the kind of issues that anyone interested in, let's say, Nazi Germany uh, wrestles with, or Stalinist Russia. Um, but think of, all, think of um, the good men, the godly men in Nazi Germany, well-educated men, sophisticated men, wept as they listened to Mozart, read uh, Goethe in the evening, and who put thousands of people to death during the day. You know, that, that extraordinary conflict between morality and Christianity and wickedness is very, very hard, I think, for modern students and modern professors to come to terms. It is a very difficult subject. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That was James Walvin of York University. You can read the piece on the abolition of the slave trade in the September issue of BBC History magazine. Professor Walvin's book, The Zong, A Massacre, The Law and the End of Slavery, is published by Yale University Press. Next, I've been talking to Catherine Foxall, Wellcome Trust postdoctoral research fellow at King's College London, about her research project, which is to investigate the history of the migraine. Your research project sounds fascinating. Um, is about the history of migraines. Why? Migraine is quite an important 
contemporary disorder, I think. Um, I think in a sense we can think about it as a spectrum from acute to chronic. So it makes us think very in a very interesting way about the history of disease in general. And I think recent studies emphasise that about 12% of the current European and American population suffer annually from migraines in one form or another. And the World Health Organisation lists migraine as one of the top 20 years lived with disability globally. Hmm. So actually in terms of a contemporary disorder, it has economic disadvantages as well. Recent reports from the BBC, for example, talk about migraine as one of the leading excuses for workplace absenteeism. Migraine is also interesting in a very historical way because I think it's, we've known about it from the second century AD. So Galen was the first to coin the term hemicrania and he talked about hemicrania in terms of hemi is half and crania is the head. But he talks about the effects of vapours rising from the stomach to the head. So migraine has this incredibly long history that we can trace in a way that you can't do with many other diseases which either die out or emerge in the modern period. So we have a very long history over nearly 2,000 years. Okay, so, so the, first, the first reference to it is back in the second century. That's when we can first identify someone talking of a migraine. That's when we can identify Galen coins this term hemicrania and from hemicrania what we get then is the modern European word for migraine. So for example you have megrim which is the, actually the English word but we then adopt the French word which is migraine or migraine. But also you have in German migrana and in Spanish migrania. So you have this common form all coming from this original word that Galen coined in the second century. So it's very easy to trace through various different historical sources. And and following that, do we have? Do we can we see it much in records for, down the centuries from that time? Is it does it come up a lot? And and how? Um, certainly, the period I'm looking at, um, I'm mainly starting in about the 18th century, mm. and certainly by then, migraine is coming up a lot in what we might call vernacular medical sources. Um, it's also talked about sporadically in medical texts in. So, for example, in the 17th century, people like William Harvey and Thomas Willis are talking about migraine as they try and discuss theory, their theories of um, the circulation of the blood, for example. By the 18th century, most migraines, most medical writers are talking about migraine um, in the sense that it's a disturbance of the stomach. Right. But you also get these very vernacular sources. And one of the most exciting sets of sources we have, particularly in this country, are the re recipe books which the Wellcome Trust holds. Yeah. And there's about 270 of these books which are collections of culinary, medical and household recipes kept by women, particularly um, during the, from, the 17th, from the 16th to the 19th centuries. Yeah. So many of these recipe books contain recipes for Megrim, which was the English term. So for example, Mrs. Corlion's recipe book, dated 1606, contains several recipes for uh, cures for migraine. Yeah. Um, so she talks of a plaster for the migreme and the head and her recipe is take six spoonfuls of the gall of an ox or cow, put them there to two spoonfuls of the powder of the longworms of the earth and the powder of half a nutmeg grated. Boil all these together upon a chafing dish of coals until it be so thick as you may spread it upon a cloth. Then take a double linen cloth and cut it fit for your forehead and as it may cover the temples. Spread this upon it and lay it to your forehead, lukewarm, and let it lie until it do fall off of itself. And she actually tells us also how to diagnose migraine. So she says, you shall know the megreme by this. It lieth in the brows or in the noddle, i.e. the back of the head, or in the side of your head. 
And there's another recipe book written by a woman called Jane Jackson, and she has six separate recipes for migraine, and this is dated from 1642. And she again says, take two or three handfuls of knotted worms in the morning and put them one by one in a pot and let them stand till it be four, four or five of the clock. Then take them out one by one and cast them into another vessel and with a good piece of rye bread, crush them together and put them into a linen cloth when you go to bed. Bind it to your temples cold and let it lie there all night and within four or five times dressing, it will be whole. So what we see then in these early modern sources is this real elements from the garden, so flowers, herbs, worms, wood lice, being mixed together with everyday cooking ingredients such as flour, spices, wine, and also more specialist ingredients such as nutmeg and frankincense. And this is really begins to tell us a lot more about how just a common disorder that we still have now fits into this early modern mm. um, economy, if you like, of everyday domestic medicine and health. And presumably as a historian of migraines, you've, you've tried these recipes? No, I haven't. One of the things I'd like to do, actually, is I'd like to do some workshops. And um, I also have a side interest in various different scurvy remedies that people have made. So one of, my, yeah, one of my plans is to have a little medical garden where I grow all this stuff and dig up worms and make plasters for my head when I have a headache. <laughs> so, is it, I mean, so it's interesting that, that that demonstrates that this must, that must have been quite a common condition, presumably, if, if people were taking the trouble to write down these recipes. Have we got any idea about how widespread it was? I mean, did, do, can we assume that the number of migraine sufferers then is the same as the number of migraine sufferers now, or is, that, is my knowledge of medical conditions failing me there? We can't make any kind of claims about percentages, I don't think. But what we can do is see that migraine, I mean, it appears again and again in these recipe, recipe books, and it's appearing again and again in popular culture and in the medical marketplace. So people understand migraine. So for example, by the end of the 18th century, it's particularly used satirically when they're talking about the French Revolution. So migraine becomes this particular way of talking about the French in a period of political unrest. They will have the vapors and migraines. So people understand migraine. Um, but it's, it's not talked of, it's not considered to be a legitimate subject of medical knowledge official medical knowledge, really until the middle of the 19th century, I don't think. But I do think it's appearing again and again in popular culture, hmm. and certainly by the 19th century. Taking the story on from, uh, from the early one, something specific happens in 1873. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yes. Um, during the middle of the 19th century, migraine is becoming very common in popular knowledge. So, for example, in the middle of the 19th century, in the 1840s, you have the London newspapers advertising the arrival of Dr. Maurice Manet, for example, from Paris. Mm. And he has a three-week residency. He claims to have been patronised by the kings of France and Holland. And he has a three-week residency when he promises that he can be consulted every day from 10 till 4 at his residence in Piccadilly. Right. We also have in 1847, for example, Jean-Vincent Bully advertising his celebrated toilet vinegar, again, which is a French product, which promises not only to refresh the skin, remove all the pimples, eruptions and discolorations of people's skin, but also promises to cure migraine. And again, you can buy that in bottles in several London stores at the price of three, shilling, three shillings and sixpence. But what you get after 1850 is this sudden shift in the way that people are talking about migraine. So from the 1850s, what you get is this group of what we might call British men of science. So people, for example, like George Biddle Airy, who's the astronomer royal, and his son Hubert. You have 
Sir John Herschel, who's an astronomer and photographer, and David Brewster, who's a photographer and also, incidentally, the inventor of the kaleidoscope. Mm. And they start talking about migraine in a very specific way in philosophical and scientific journals. And what they do is they start making drawings of their visual disturbances and writing about their visual disturbances. And part, and it's, this is all wrapped migraine into what they considered their scientific identity. So these were men who were very sensitive to vision and light and to their scientific sense of themselves. So migraine becomes wrapped up in this and it becomes public discourse in a way that it hasn't been before when it's just been advertised in the newspapers, remedies and what we might now call quack doctors advertising in the newspapers. So what this happens then in the 1850s and 1860s is migraine becomes a legitimate source of scientific knowledge and interest. By the 1870s, migraine has become quite a fashionable topic. And then in 1873, Edward Living publishes the, what becomes the first standalone book on migraine. And that's called On Megrim. And, and it's published in 1873. What is that? Is that significant? What is that? What is, how does that change the, the, the face of migraine understanding? What Living comes up with is this theory of the nerve storm. So whereas before medical discourse has talked about migraine predominantly in terms of the stomach and of the humours and of the sympathy between brain and stomach, what Living does is really inserts migraine into a nervous way of thinking about disease which is very current in the 19th century. So what you get then in the late 19th century, all of these men talking about vision and science, migraine suddenly becomes a neurological disorder then. And then also, so you have all this public scientific talk about migraine, but also then it becomes institutionalised. So in the 19th century you have a new kind of institution, a very specialist kind of medical institution. And one of these specialist institutions that opens hospitals in London is the National Hospital for Par Paralysis and Epilepsy, which is now the UCL Neurology Hospital. So when migraine becomes this legitimate topic of conversation in terms of its nervous basis, the kind of men who are now known as the fathers, fathers of English neurology, people like John Hewlings Jackson, William Gowers, they're predominantly working with cases of epilepsy and with paralysis, but they're also talking a lot about migraine. And particularly William Gowers is famous for writing a book in the first decade of the 20th century where he includes migraine in a set of disorders that on, he calls on the borderlands of epilepsy. And that late 19th century period is really what neurologists now consider to be the founding moment in which migraine becomes a neurological, becomes understood as a neurological disorder, which is the contemporary way we have thinking about migraine now. Interesting. So you're just, you're just embarking on your research project in fairly early stages of it now. What, um, what, what sort of things are you hoping to find? What, what areas are you going to be looking into? The main thing I want to do in this project then is this second half of the, 17th, of the 19th century, which I've just been talking about, is really the celebrated golden era of what we call the birth of modern neurology. And this is a story that's very important, particularly to physicians and to neurologists. But I feel slightly dissatisfied with that story because what we actually lose, we talk about the great neurologists, people like John Hewlings, Jackson, William Gowers, but what we lose in talking about those people is this ordinary history of migraine as something that people deal with on an everyday basis on a very large scale. 
for example, the people, the women of the 18th century who are writing about migraine in their recipe books, or the people who are reading newspapers in early 19th century London, who are then going out and buying these patent remedies. So what I'm really interested in is getting at the stories of the ordinary people who actually we very rarely hear from in medical history and in other kinds of history. So for example, in the case notes of the London Hospital for um, paralysis and epilepsy, we, were, we might meet, for example, a girl called Elizabeth, who was a 16-year-old servant from Wiltshire. And she talked to the neurologist about what her problem was and how, how she was ill. So she was one of 11 children, and she told the doctor that the house in which she grew up was unhealthy, was very drafty and damp, moss grew up the walls, and the drains were carried straight into a stream. We also know that Elizabeth said that her father was ne never very well and that he too had suffered from sickness and pains in the head. And then she said she believed she was quite healthy. She said she'd never suffered from anything except nettle rash. But then she also said that ever since she could remember she'd suffered from these pains and sickness in the head. And these pains began to increase when she went to school but had been particularly bad since she'd been able to read. So what we get then is these very personal stories. And I think as a historian actually that that's a really interesting thing to know and I think as you know we should spend more time looking for just the stories of ordinary people in the past so that's what I really hope this project will do is to look at migraine historically as something that actually lots of people have suffered from and continue to suffer from and I think that is particularly important not just for migraine but as a, when we're thinking about the history of health and illness in particular that actually health and illness is something which is so completely central to people's sense of themselves and their understanding of their place in the world and their relationships with work and family. So actually what I'm hoping to do with this migraine project is to think much more broadly about how, just how we think about illness in the past and how that might affect how we think about illness in the present as well. That was Catherine Foxall of King's College London. If you want to see some of the recipe books she talked about, they've been digitised by the Wellcome Trust. Do a web search for Wellcome Recipe Books, and the link ought to be prominent in the search results. Now, lastly, we've got our final interview with Dan Snow, uh, who's been presenting the Primetime BBC One series National Treasures Live. For five weeks, that show's been touring the country, coming live from Britain's heritage sites. So I asked him to tell us what's in the last episode. The last programme, we, we'd done a naval base with Great Castle, we talked about Shakespeare, we looked at motor cars in, in historic Bewley, and I thought what was really missing was your classic country house. Mm. Can't have a national treasure series about British history that sort of glories in British history without a, a, a country and garden stately home. So we're going to Irving House in Wrexham in Wales, and it's just sort of upstairs, downstairs. We're going to look at, um, we're going to look at the history of Victorian domesticity and the master-servant relationship and all this kind of stuff that people are endlessly fascinated by. And I go to all these National Trust properties and English heritage houses, and all the guides always tell me that the only thing people ask about is, you know, where people went to the loo and where the servants were and what the back stairs led to and all this kind of stuff. And they're not interested in the classic, which I would be more interested in, but the old, you know, the paintings of members of the family, the, uh, the charters given to them by, by some monarch or another, or the battle standards of some regiment that their ancestors commanded. That's the stuff I'm interested in, but most people are interested in the sort of social history and how the building actually worked as a home, as an office, as a residence, as a, as a party venue. So we can look at that. It's, and it's, it's, a wonderful, it's a classic stately home. It's lovely. 
And you're going to get right into the bowels of this house, aren't you? We're going to get in the bowels of the house. We're going to carry hot food from the kitchen to the dining room, see how difficult that was. And if we don't, you know, if it doesn't arrive hot, we're in big trouble. So we're really going to, we're really going to look at that. Upstairs, downstairs. Great. Sounds good. What are the other segments in, in the program? Well, we've also got, for the people that don't like that kind of thing, we've got Sheila Hancock looking at spies in World War II and the Cold War. So, Great. yeah, she's got a real passion for that. So... Uh, we try to match up well-known people with things that they actually were really interested in. So it, it's not just sort of making um, celebrities out of work. We didn't just sort of um, give, make, make them do a story they're totally unengaged with. So Sheila Hancock's got a real passion for um, female spies. That's going to be great fun. And then to end my strange road trip around the UK with the... Uh, the historic, the sort of the, the doubter. Uh, Michael Douglas is a hairdresser. He doesn't. He left school at fifteen. He grew up in Preston, and he doesn't care about history. And so I, uh, we, we want to talk about warfare and how endemic warfare has been in the history of the British Isles. I took him to all these battlefields, Bannockburn, uh, right the way up through the borders, right into Scotland, and then I introduced him to a very, very special interviewee who's. Uh, a guy um, called John Moffat, who dropped the torpedo that hit the Bismarck in the rudder, jammed the rudder, and forced the Bismarck to just go around in circles where the rest of the British Navy could close in and pound her to death. So he's seen war up front. He's played the most incredible part on, on the great stage of history. And I wanted Michael to meet him and understand why I love history, why history is important, why it still matters to me and to so many people in this country. So it's a... A mixed bag, but it'll be a fantastic episode. Hopefully you get some good weather on that one. And, and you want people to come along to Irvig with you? We'd love people in the northwest and in Wales to come to Irvig, yeah. We, it's, um, there's plenty of room for everyone. Massive stately home, lovely grounds. So if people want to come, that'd be great. If they just go to the Irvig House website, it would be really good to see everyone. So that fifth and final episode of National Treasures Live is on BBC One at 7.30pm on Wednesday the 7th of September. Do get in touch if you have any comments on the podcast. Uh, you can contact us by emailing podcast at historyextra.com or get in touch via Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. That's it for this week. Next time round, we'll have a fascinating discussion about how Victorian missionaries interacted with the people they were tasked with introducing to God. It's a good story. I fervently hope you'll join us for it. 